This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. You're listening to Bookmark with me, Uma Pagan Ampage Pagan. Joining me on the show today is Gerald Tan. He is the author of a brand new coffee table book on Penang street food called Tok Tok Me. Uh, my name is Gerald Tan. I am the author of Tok Tok Me, which is a portrait of Penang street food. It's a new book, Coffee Table and a Culinary Memoir. Before we get into the book, what is it about Penang people more so than any other people who always feel the need to remind you that they're Penang people because we are the best seriously i mean at some point in down the line there's going to be a republic of penang and basically you are allowed to be a citizen if you love food that's that's just a simple that makes sense one requirement that makes sense and so i think it's safe to say given the time and effort you've spent putting this book together that you are a firm believer that Penang food is the best food in the world. I not am just not. in Malaysia. Oh, you're not. I am not. Listen, That's I... sacrilege. I... The, the problem is that I love food, right? That is just the period, period of it. And so I have no favorite dish. I have no favorite cuisine. I try to find merit in every country, in everything I eat. Now, don't get me wrong. You know, I don't love everything. Anthony Bourdain sort of makes it his kind of badge of honor to tell you that he loves the the brains and yes. the ears and the jowls and you know kind of the bollocks even yeah. <laughs> of the cow. He makes it a point, right? And because it's kind of like, oh yeah, these are cockroaches. There we go. This is exactly. <laughs> and to me, that's not the true mark of it. I mean, it's it's a mark of being a foodie. I will try everything once, but I will very quickly tell you. Yes, I love this. Or no, thank you. <laughs> you know, on to dessert, please. Um, but my whole thing is, I really do try to find good in every flavor. I love sort of the history of food. I love to see how the spices ended up somewhere, and then to taste it and kind of go, oh yeah, this is great. And it's so strange to be eating X here. I mean, for instance, the first time. I was in Beijing. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up in a, a Xinjiang restaurant because it's something I had never encountered before. And I'm eating all this going, this tastes somewhat Italian slash Turkish right. slash Stovac. Because we make that mistake, right? We just say Chinese food. Right. But of course, as soon as you go to China, you realize there is no such thing as Chinese food. Correct. And so, you know, to me, there's such beauty in learning sort of that whole historical thread of the food that is there, how people eat it, why people eat it. So for me, it's always more of a cultural quest. I am really veering off topic again. No, 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 uh, no, no. Keep going. Sorry. Keep going. This is what uh, we do on this show. <laughs> but for me, you know, why do I love Penang food? For me, Penang food clearly is very nostalgic. You know, I grew up on all those crazy laksas and curry mees and soups and, you know, prawn head, prawn shell broth. Yeah. yeah you know, absolutely love it. Um, I think everyone should try it. I do think that, yes, it is perhaps, for me, the most distinctive cuisine you'll find in Malaysia. Um, In all of Asia, mm, 
I am going to sort of take back now. People are going to go, how can you write a Penang book and say Penang is not the best one in the world? I'm just trying to be honest. Of you course know? you can. No, no, but of course you can. Because, because I think if your, if your philosophy of food is, as you've just explained, this idea of it being a cultural journey, then every country you go to is going to be its own unique Totally, totally. And, you know, Penang food in particular, there is a bit of a renaissance, a resurgence at the moment. I guess a lot more people are writing about it. You know, uh, Jahaba Sadiq put out a book on Nasi Kanda in Penang Mm -hmm. uh, at the Georgetown Literary Festival. And I think that's, I'm happy about that because I think for the longest time we had cookbooks and recipe books. But we didn't have these kind of books that appreciated the cuisine. Correct. You know, it's sort of an ethnographic look. Yes. Correct. And, um, and... Penang is one of and, those... And like a pop culture ethnographic book, because I, I think that's the tone that your book takes. It's not trying to be an academic work. Not at all. Not at all. You know, I'm just trying to sort of see how does the food exist in its current state, right? Street food, I mean, we all know it. It's fast, it's cheap, it's dirty, uh, but also incredibly delicious, Yes. right? Um, and so I... I have a very romantic view of Penang. I do. I sort of look at it with this really rose-tinted lenses and kind of go, oh, look at it. It's under a tree and in the shade, you know, the, there's a nice cool breeze and I can see sort of the Uncle Becha sort of riding past and the motorcycles revving across. And I just think this is, you know, some gorgeous scene from a film. Um, and that's why I sort of relish it. And I think I was trying to hopefully sort of impart that experience um, to tourists who come by who might initially kind of have... You, you can really be taken aback, right? Because the setting is just... It's very in-your-face. Penang street food is very sort of just brash and strident. Um, but that's part of the charm of it. Was that the point of inspiration for this book? Was that the reason you decided to put it together? Or was it something else? No, it's totally different, I would say. Um, I think for me, the the... the, the what started the journey was saying, do you remember when X? And I was, you know, back for Chinese New Year two years ago and with a friend and we were just really reminiscing. And for me, there are lots of things that are happening now, uh, which are great. You know, there is this resurgence, but there is such a thing about tradition that is being lost. And I was trying to just capture that moment. You know, something that I grew up with, um, it is, and, and this also, the book itself is not a long history of street food. It's not the evolution of, as you've seen, because if I want to trace that, it's so different when I was growing up from even when my parents were growing up. Of course. So they have a very different relationship to the street food. I do as well. And my nieces and nephews, you know, that whole kind of generational thing. So I think I'm just capturing one slice of it. And of course, your nieces and nephews, for example, their generation is going to have a completely different sense of nostalgia to what you're having because where even the locations as to where they're having their street food is different. It's totally different. But what I will say is really interesting. I mean, we all know this. We grew up, well, I did in Penang, where the king of food, where you would have your birthday party, where you you desperately begged your parents to have, you know, at weekends because it was such a treat, was fast food. 
Of course. KFC, McDonald's, exactly. you know, White Castle, Carl's Jr. Remember all these names, right? Let me right? tell you something. The first thing I did when I got my driver's license and I was 17 years old was to drive myself to McDonald's. Because I remember as a kid, hey, hey. that was the thing, right? You, right? you were constantly at the mercy of others to take you for a milkshake. Correct. And when you have and the freedom... French fries into your milkshake. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> right, yeah. Exactly. But no, it, it, that seems to be a... A universal experience. Correct. And so, you know, I think I write one little chapter about it as well. When you're young, you tend to reject the food of your, of your, of your youth, right? And for me, when I was growing up, it was all about we want quote-unquote, Western food. So it was more chicken chop. Here my parents were trying to shove down Saho Fan and Hokkien Mi down my throat. And I go, yeah, 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 that's fine. But I can't have that three meals a day. And so you're, you're desperately trying to go for this. And I would say that, you know, in the early... When I left the country at 17, you know, for about three years, I didn't touch one lick of Malaysian food. And I didn't have a single craving for it because suddenly it was like the opening up of a brand new world. There's so much to experience. So much to experience. Um, and, And then it was only after you're away from it for so long, right? And then one day, you're, you know, I don't know, you're sitting somewhere and you're having this beautiful, you know, insert blank pufflova, quote unquote, you know. And and you you kind of go, oh my gosh, remember that Asam Laksa, how did they make that? You know, how did they get all that rich kind of briny fish broth into it? And what makes it so aromatic and all those herbs? And so finally, when I came back here, you know, sort of, I don't know, maybe three, four or five years after that, then I was on this hunt with my parents and I said, I want to go to every single stand we used to go to as a family, <laughs> right? And now suddenly I'm going, how do they make this? How do they incorporate the flavour? What's all these little bits here and there? Um, but I think you need that. I think you need that distance and I think you need mm-hmm. you need to have not experienced it for a long time for you to crave <laughs> it and want it again, yes. right? That's important and and and, mm. and and you know the idea of us wanting Western food, right. it, it just it feels like a natural experience to anyone who wants something different. Right. I mean, even if you go to China right now, everyone loves KFC. Yeah, they and do. they eat so much Correct. KFC because it's different. Correct. They've had Chinese food forever. Yeah, but then of course, then the difference between my nieces and nephews too is, you know, at eight years old, I come back and I try to take my nieces and nephews out on dates, quote right. unquote. You know, because my rule is you feed them. I have a nice two-hour thing where I give them so much sugar and I just give them back, back to, to my the siblings. I'm just yes. kind of like, it's your problem now. But I'm cool Uncle Gerald, right? So um, so I asked them, I said, what do you want to have for lunch? And, you know, when I was a kid, it would have been so simple. Burger with french fries. Now they kind of go, hmm, well, we could have sashimi. I'm just kind of going... What? This is an eight-year-old kid. I was like, or oh, maybe we could have Vietnamese. You know, you know, I just want some some little fries, uh, rice roll or like bun cha, or maybe some pho. And I'm thinking to myself, these are things that I was not exposed to. No, right. So we, as Malaysia, as you know, you go around now. You've got tapas. You've got tim sum. You've got everything. Everything. And our because we have sort of. Ev- I think our palates have really evolved, you know, and it's just thrown open. And I think more so than most countries in the world. I in think a way, we're yes. quite unique in Malaysia. Correct. In that our exposure to foreign totally. cuisine is insane. Totally. And we lap it all up because it's so simple, right? Because I think Malaysian cuisine itself, 
already oh, has so many influences. Right? Yeah. Exactly. It's got all this mishmash. So we are so used to spicy and sweet, you know, salty and sour. We're just kind of like, yes, umami, me everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> right? So for us to have all these different influences is easy. It's really, really easy. Um, so I, I, I'm really kind of, I feel I'm really happy to be back here and see that because, you know, I, I think when you have tasted the world, your, curios- your curiosity of the world is also heightened, right? That's how people want to travel to all these different places. They've had Ethiopian cuisine and now they want to see the country. Correct. And so I think Malaysia in that sense is in a very unique position of just being curious about the world um, because we appreciate all the food. So Gerald, in the book, uh, you've got some wonderful photos as well by Benjamin Emery. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, talk to me about that collaboration. How did you guys start working together? So Benjamin Emery was my first cameraman um, and I've worked with him for 12 years now. So about 12 years ago was when I became a TV reporter. I was always a writer, producer, behind the scenes. And Ben was just incredibly patient with me, uh, for which you will always be grateful. <laughs> you know, as a budding reporter, you make all sorts of mistakes. Um, but what became very, very apparent was his you know, keen attention to detail. And I've never seen anyone produce such gorgeous pictures. And so later on in my career, when I was given a food show, I immediately, and you know, Ben and I had sort of gone different countries, I said, he's the only person I want to work with. And he then produced this gorgeous documentaries for me um, that had this sense of place and history and culture and beauty and nature intertwined with the food. So when I was asked to uh, produce this book, there was only clearly one person I would allow to handle the subject matter. And I've, I've received, I, I wouldn't say flack, but lots of people have sort of, you know, raised their eyebrow and go, look, this is such a Malaysian book, you know, Every, the whole subject matter, um, the you're title. the writer, the title. And so why would you get an Australian guy to take the photos? And I say, look, at the end of the day, I think the experience that you're getting from the book is perhaps even more so my words, his pictures, you know, I tell people this is a coffee table book with stunning pictures and a few words that I've inserted here and there. <laughs> you know, it really is his eye. Um, ben and I worked in Penang together. He filmed my stories when Penang got UNESCO heritage status, right. sort of that thing. And he just latched on to Malaysian food like you wouldn't believe. He can eat sambal better than I can. But I think that's what's important, <laughs> right? I, I don't think it matters as to the nationality no. of your photographer. I think here is someone, at least from what I can see from his photos, who is as in love with the subject matter as you are. And you have to be to be able to take these photos and have that eye. Correct. Right? It's not something that happens by chance. No. And I think that's what's important. And it comes across in the work. Thank you. And, and Ben will be very pleased to hear it. And he will listen to this because he... <laughs> we will send him the podcast and make him listen <laughs> totally, to it. Totally, totally. Exactly. And, you know, the thing is, what I've always appreciated about his work is his patience. You know, you... On, in this book itself, I think there are about 500 images right now. Um, we filmed actively for 14 days over a year, two trips. Wow. Uh, and... In the total, I think he's got 21,000 photos. It took us months to sift through. You know, at every location, um, he would spend two, three, sometimes four hours, all just to get that one perfect shot 
of the man chopping a, a roast chicken yes, duck. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and he really gets to know all these vendors as well, which I, I love about Ben. You know, he's worked in war zones. He's worked in really crazy places. But no matter where he goes, he spends time with the people. And so... Um, it made my job really easy interviewing them because we'd be there for three hours. And, you know, when you write a book about food with street vendors, we're not sitting there going, oh, uncle, can I come here next week and we'll have an interview from 2 to 4 p.m. While he's while he's, while working, he's, the, while he's while doing working, his thing. There's this mad din. I try to go sort of 11 a.m. when he's sh- setting up shop, right? By about 11.30, the queues are forming. And they'd be talking to us while they're making all this, right? And part of the reason I think they were so patient with us was they just loved Ben being there, you know? And he's sort of saying, okay, just do your thing. I'm invisible. But they'd be talking. And suddenly they'd just burst out laughing because Ben is now kind of like on his back, on the floor of this gritty street, trying to get an image of the, the charcoal burning in the fire, right? <laughs> um, but no, it's it's uh, that's why I work with Benjamin Emery. How did you decide on the locations? Because in my experience, when I go to Penang and I go, hey, where to get Kuei Tiawa? Right. I will get 15 different answers and if all 15 people will tell me theirs is the best right. one. Right. So did you, <laughs> did you make a conscious decision to not care about what's the best or totally. the greatest and just, and just go for characters and personality? And- it's exactly that. Um, I think there are enough blogs out there, particularly telling you where to eat. There's a lot. Correct. There's a guide and they'll tell you when it's open and order this and order that. (laughs) Yes. That is totally not um, sort of the thrust of this book. This book is really, we sort of said, what is this dish? You know, what is it? How is it made? So in every chapter, you know, I talk in sort of precision about the ingredients and sort of the processes that are perhaps very interesting to make this dish. Perhaps there is the etymology of it, mm-hmm. so how it came to be, how it's morphed over time, my sort of personal experiences with it, growing up, sort of my memory. And for people who perhaps have never been exposed to that food, they might hear about it in a cultural context, right? You know, like, we used to eat it when we were sick, or it's a predominantly breakfast thing, however you want to say it. And here you have to use your hands, you have to use your right hand, whatever it might be. So in... In selecting these, we totally went for character. Um, my editor of the book, Alan Lau, as you see, uh, is chiefly responsible for whittling down the locations. So what he'd do, he, he would go to 10 Chakwetiao places or 10 kind of Appam places and say, these are the spots. And I go, mm, it's all in a food court. I really don't want it. I want someone more traditional. Can you find someone who still do? Because I remember when I did it, you know, when I at it, they would be fanning. So I want to see that kind of rattan fans. Yes. Right? So find me someone who has a rattan fan. <laughs> and he'd go and he'd take pictures and send it. So he did most of the location searches. And he'd find all these different people. And I would go and speak to them. And so I'd say, oh, tell me your story. And if the story was compelling enough, then I really want to include them. Um, and I'm really glad I did because part of my mission this past uh, two weeks was to deliver the books to these um, characters. Of course, and I won't say exactly whom, but I was really sad to find that three of them are in quite poor health. Right. Uh, one I went to, and his son was doing it, 
And so I was like, oh, you know, I don't see the, your father. You kind of think, was, there he is. He says, go give him the book. And when I saw the uncle, I couldn't recognize him. He lost about 15 kilos and looked like he aged 15 years. I just could not. And I have seen him since I was we small, yeah. right? Um, and they're just so grateful. They're grateful that the people who are interested in what they do, who find value and merit in their livelihood, right? Um, and it's... it's and one who've of, dedicated their lives to a craft. To a craft. That's the one thing I keep saying. I cannot fathom doing what they do. You know, 50, 60 years of making exactly one thing. Yeah. You know, may be washing the intestines of the animal to make intestine porridge. It, it's it's something they do six days a week. You know, for six days, I just could not fathom it. And that's why when people kind of go, why don't you have any recipes? I said, look, if you want a recipe book, just go to the cookbook. There are store. enough recipe. There are books. enough recipe yeah. books, right? Um, but these are stories that need to be. Told. These are stories that need to be told. But more than that, they go, why can't I make this street food at home? And I go. Well, just think about it. You're trying to dabble, right? You're trying yes. to you're trying to just one day kind of go, oh, you know, I'm going to make this X dish, and you follow the recipe. Yeah. But here, the wok has been honed for sixty years. Yes, in that in itself has flavor. Correct. Right? You I know mean, all about the wok hay. Yeah, as they you're not going to get that from your frying pan at home. No, no, and they, you know, it's interesting how they can just look at something. They can look at the state of the noodle that's being blanched. They can see the steam evaporating and know it's done. Yeah. Right? There are no measurements. There are no measurements. It's feel. Totally. And that's actually something that's quite important about cooking. Well, it becomes muscle memory. It becomes muscle memory, but you have to understand every single ingredient and realize that everything could affect your dish from the humidity. I know it sounds kind of really technical and artsy-fartsy, and I'm not trying to be pedantic here, but it actually can, right? You know, um, where you're cooking it, how you're cooking it, whether your ingredients have been refrigerated before, if they come fresh from the farm, all that stuff. Correct. Um, so they are masters of a craft, and they're dying masters. Yeah. Um, they really are. I was so sad because the day before I came down here to KL, I went to deliver, and I'm not going to say this again, whom, because I don't want to dis discredit them. But um, this pair um, have essentially retired. Last year, when I went to visit them, they were still serving. They were there, they were cooking, they were serving very slowly. And now they are sitting in a chair and they've allowed sort of a younger generation to take over. Um, I asked and they said they're not really relatives. So, end period. And I tasted one and I said, this is, this is actually horrible. I would not tell anyone to come here to eat this at this point because it's just so bad, you know. And even if they're there present saying you need to fry it for how long and, you know, they could be there present, but because it's not their hands. And I'm not just, it, it just tasted so different. And I know, you know, if you ask any Penangite, they will be so scrupulous in telling you. Oh, very. Oh, it's his son making now. Cannot eat. No good. Cannot Every taxi get. driver will tell me the same thing. Correct. They've raised the price by one ringgit. Don't go Don't there. Don't go there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my grandmother used to always say, Be chia liao. You know, you can't eat it anymore because it's just, you know, deteriorated in yeah. quality. Yeah. And most of the times, I sort of taste it and go, 
actually, it's exactly the same. You know, <laughs> you're just saying this because it's now 50 cents more expensive. Exactly. Or because they've moved from a location where it was easy for you to park your car. No, you're right. You know, with Penang people, you know, uh, taste and price are a function of one another. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. More so than anywhere else in the world. Here's a question, you know, and I am asking this really honestly, but... Is this a phenomenon that's only in Penang or everywhere else in Malaysia where when I meet my relatives for breakfast, our topic of conversation really just revolves around what's for lunch, where are we having dinner, Correct. and where should we meet for breakfast tomorrow? That's about right. Okay, fine. Our conversation <laughs> on breakfast is what are you doing for lunch and why didn't you tell me, right? Yeah, essentially. Um, Gerald, is Penang, I mean, is this book about Penang a labor of love or is this something that you want to do more of um, with other kinds of food in other parts of Malaysia? Well, the publisher's already on my case. Oh, that's good. That means it's doing well. <laughs> yes, it's doing really well. I'm very pleased to say, and thank you so much, you know, for having interest in it. Um, I really would like to start to delve into, I think, Malaysian cuisine a bit more, um, to go into parts that I'm not familiar with. You know, I think the East Coast cuisine is fascinating. What you get in Borneo. Yeah. Um, Already as it is, I'm trying to look into sweets because I have oh, an incorrigible with the sweets. sweet yes. tooth, right? I have dessert for breakfast every day. And so I want to sort of trace sort of, you know, all the different regions, what the specialities. Um, but it will take time, I think, you know, because Penang was definitely easier because I grew up with it. Um, you have a base. I have a base. And... Uh, I know a lot of people there who could steer me the right way. If I start going down this path with other foods in Malaysia, it is going to take a lot more time and research. But it's something I think I really would like to devote time to doing because it, it's a story that needs to be told. Um, and it's not going to be a cookbook. There will not be any recipes because, full disclosure, I am a horrible chef. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. As long as you appreciate it, that's what's important. I do. Uh, well, actually, most importantly, Gerald, where can people find the book? They can find it in all leading bookstores across Malaysia. Um, Kinokuniya, Times, MPH. And how much is it? It is 180 ringgit. But uh, for those of you who can't see the book, because obviously we're on radio, it is this wonderful hardbound edition, full-color photos yes. and everything. So, yes, it's, it's really quite the book. It can find a home on your coffee table and your bookshelf. Your gifts, Christmas is around the corner. I mean, you know, it's only... It's only nine months it's only away. Nine months away. <laughs> it's only nine months away. <laughs> you can put it... You might as well get started. Santa might, you know, send you one if you've been a really good boy. <laughs> uh, Gerald, thank you so much for joining me and talking to me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. I really had a good time. You heard the man. You can find a copy of Talk Talk Me at all good bookstores. Go out and get one. You've been listening to Bookmark. This is BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.